You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark and Jace. This is episode number 70. This is our last week of the first giveaway we're doing. If you haven't heard, we're giving away a new copy of Chris Hogan's recently released book titled Everyday Millionaire and a $50 Visa gift card. To enter the giveaway, we're asking you to do two things. Number one is to join our email list at millionairesunveiled.com. And two is to subscribe to our show and leave a review on either iTunes or Stitcher. We'll draw the winner this week and announce it on next week's episode. So last week to enter that giveaway. Also, if you'd like to follow us on Instagram under the handle millionaires underscore unveiled and Twitter at mill unveiled for insights on wealth and investments. A special thanks to Equity Multiple for supporting the show. One of the tried and true paths to becoming and staying a millionaire is establishing passive income streams. Perhaps the most tried and true passive income channel for savvy investors is commercial real estate. Equity Multiple connects accredited investors with pre-vetted exclusive commercial real estate investments with investment minimums as low as $10,000. With Equity Multiple, you can allocate a meaningful portion of your portfolio to professionally managed commercial real estate and create a stronger, more diversified portfolio. Head to equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires to learn more. Again, that's equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires. On last week's episode, we had a guest interview with Sarah Falah. If you haven't heard of her, she is Thomas Stanley's daughter, and he wrote one of the most famous, if not the most famous, personal finance books titled The Millionaire Next Door. And so she, along with her father, wrote this new book titled The Next Millionaire Next Door. We discussed this new book with Sarah and her new findings and insights about millionaires. We'll do a giveaway next week that features a copy of this new book. If you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We're specifically looking for millionaires or those who are close to a net worth of one million to come on the show and share their story and portfolio allocation. All of us have unique stories, and that's one of the goals of this podcast, to share stories of individuals and, and divulge the fact that there are many ways to become a millionaire and to grow your net worth. As we mentioned last week, we have a few interns working with us right now who recently surveyed over 100 college students about wealth and retirement. One question we asked was, how much do you think you'll need to retire? The top answer at 28% of respondents was $1 million. Another question we asked was, what does it mean to be rich or what is considered rich? It was a multiple choice question with answer options being 1 million, 2 million, 3 million, 5 to 10, and over 10. 43% of those who were surveyed said you were rich if you had a net worth of $1 million, but less than two. If you'd like to invest in our multifamily opportunities, please reach out to us at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com, and we'll jump on a call with you to discuss any opportunities we have and and the strategy and and our track record of success and, and so forth. Next week's episode will feature Taylor with a net worth of $5 million, so a millionaire interview. He's a financial advisor and a businessman. And on today's show, we have a guest interview with Brad from Choose FI. Brad is the co-host of that popular podcast, Choose FI. We talked to Brad about how the podcast got started, as well as some life and financial hacks. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Brad. 
Brad, do you want to just get into a little bit of your story and maybe kind of the story of how Choose FI got started and how you and Jonathan met and, and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. This should be fun. And yeah, I guess let's talk about Chooseify first. So I actually had started some some websites kind of like in the travel rewards world. So helping people kind of travel for free or close to free using rewards points. And I was actually on the Mad Scientist podcast and Jonathan heard me. So he was just a listener of the podcast and he heard this guy, Brad, who lived in Richmond, Virginia was into travel rewards and was into financial independence. And Jonathan's sitting there thinking, I'm into all those things too. And he just shot me an email. We went out to lunch. And if you've listened to our podcast, you know, Jonathan's super excitable. He just sat there and like talked at me for an hour, like in his <laughs> incredibly excited way. And he, he had this idea for this website. And at that point, it wasn't a podcast. It was just, Hey, I'm going to start a financial blog. Right. Which I've heard a million times and you just never know if somebody's going to take action. Right. And that, that's the key to success for me is, is taking action. So, you know, again, we had this lunch and that was it. And then maybe three months later, I shot him an email, just a one line email, basically saying, Hey man, did you ever get started with that website? And he said that one one line email changed his entire life. And he literally, he's like, wow, this guy Brad actually cares. He bought the website, chooseify.com that day, and then somehow or another came up with this idea for a podcast, pitched me on it within a couple of days, and for whatever reason, I thought it sounded like a great idea, and we got started. I mean, that's that really is the inception story of Chooseify. That's awesome. And now what, you're at 30 plus thousand on Facebook and, and, and tons and tons of tons of listeners. Yeah, it's been it's been wild. I mean, we started at the beginning of 2017 when we were recording this. It's December 2018. And yeah, we're at like six million plus downloads. We have, I guess, local groups, Chooseify local groups with like in real life meetups in over 150 cities throughout the world. It's been it's been amazing to see how this this community has grown. So where does where does the brand and where does kind of the movement go from here? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting question. We've seen just in the last, like I said, two years, our choose FI brand, but also more importantly, the FI movement just explode in the popular consciousness. It's, it's really been pretty remarkable to see. I remember I met you guys actually at the FinCon conference in 2018, but I remember going to FinCon in like 2014. And the people who self-identified as members of the financial independence community were maybe 10 to 20 people. That was it. And if you guys recollect from, from this one, this past, I guess, September here in 2018, there were hundreds upon hundreds of people who would self-identify as, as not only bloggers and podcasters, but just people from the FI community who just wanted to be there. So it was, I mean, remarkable just to see the exponential growth there. But we see that that's just a microcosm for how we see the exponential growth of FI, not only in the U.S., but worldwide. I mean, it's it's been amazing. You see it in the New York Times, Washington Post. Every episode, every issue of Money Magazine now, I see something about FI. You know, we've had this big dust up with Susie Orman recently. And, you know, it's been just really pretty wild to see. But I think what it's done is it's made talking about finances with your friends and family and colleagues, it's just made it a lot more normal. I mean, I know, obviously, 
there's some selection bias here for, for me since I'm a FI podcaster, but even just in my own life, I can talk to people about finances now in ways that I previously couldn't. And it's not just me, Brad, the podcaster. Like I see people all across the country and all across the world having these conversations that they previously felt odd about, right? It's, it's the great taboo of money. And I, I think that's being broken down. And I think it's being broken down because FI is such a hopeful message. It's such a positive message as opposed to, oh, what are you saving money? You're frugal or you're cheap. Like there's none of that. Like we've reframed that message to being this positive, hopeful message about how do you connect with people? How do you strive towards happiness? How do you get what you want out of life? And I think that is just such an amazing message. Yeah, it's been pretty remarkable to to kind of see the movement of of FI and financial independence, and maybe for some of our listeners who who aren't quite as familiar with the the term, how would you go about defining, you know, FI or financial independence, and and maybe on the broader scale, like obviously there's probably gonna be tons of different different ep- definitions, but kind of how would you define it? How would you define it within you know the brand of Choose FI? What does it mean to be FI or financially independent? Yeah, I mean, to your point, there is a huge spectrum. But I mean, to me, at its essence, it's being intentional about your money and your life and not just kind of sleepwalking through, as we call it, like the hamster wheel of life, the day to day grind that just repeats ad nauseum for decades and like not taking a step out and saying like, Hey, what do I want out of my life? So I think it really, FI to me transcends just the money. It's really like, what do I want the next five decades of my life on this planet to look like? So in order to get there, to me, like the biggest stressor in life for most people is, is money, right? So if you can get on a positive path and have that as like this overarching umbrella of my financial life is on the right trajectory, then it opens up space to actually think about those other things that you want out of life. How do you connect with family and friends? How do you get in good shape? How do you worry about your health and your, you know, connections and it just all this stuff, right? That most people don't have time to think about. So I would say to me, like that's, that's where you get started. But now obviously, like if we want to get into the technical definition of FI, I mean, I think, I think people talk about being at full financial independence when you basically have like, 25 times of your annual expenses saved up. So that's like in your, in your ultimate net worth. So I guess just to give a real back of the envelope calculation, like if your yearly expenses were $40,000, 25 times that is $1 million. So that would be the net worth that you would need in order to essentially take out 4% of that every single year, which is $40,000, which theoretically, that's kind of like a rule of thumb, this 4% rule of thumb, that you can take 4% of your nest egg out each year. And because of growth, that money should last, if not in perpetuity, then certainly for many, many, many decades. So that's kind of the background, guys, but obviously follow up with any any additional questions. Yeah, no, that's great. I think there's so much to go off of here. So first of all, maybe Let's go back to that number. So Susie Orman, right? She said five million bucks. You need five million, and and you can't do it on any last ride. And there was some big controversy in in the five space and the fire space. And what do you think the number is? Is you, you kind of mentioned a million bucks if you had a four percent withdrawal rate, but 
I mean, what's a number for an average family of, let's say, four or five, you know, a couple with two or three kids? How much do they need to retire? Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be very, very personal for where where they come down on on what they want their lifestyle to look like and and how much their lives cost, right? So it's definitely like I think that's you asked before about like what is the message behind Chooseify, and the message is you choose your life. This is a choose your own adventure, but we ask you to take action. You have to take action. You can't just sit there and expect your life to magically change, right? So in order to, if you have a zero percent savings rate you're never going to retire, right? So you have to get up off the couch and take action and pull some of these many levers. Like it's not, I'm not going to ask you to downsize into a tiny home and sell your car and bicycle to work every day for for here to eternity. Like that's not going to work for many people. But in order to get some kind of savings, you have to create that space, right? You have to maybe cut down some of food expenses or cut your cable bill or cell phone or whatever it may be, right? Like you have to take action. So anyway, that's kind of the background. But so I would say like for me, for argument's sake, if we had our house paid off, which, you know, that's a, a very personal decision. That's another one in the FI community that people kind of argue about. But let's just say hypothetically, when we pay off our house, our life expenses probably are in that forty to $50,000 range. So for our family, and I mean, if you guys saw where we lived, we live in a upper middle class, one of the nicest areas of the Richmond, Virginia metro area. We don't look like we're depriving ourselves because guys, we're not depriving ourselves. We live this wonderful life of abundance. We just are smart, right? Like we drive old cars. We're intentional about our food. We have inexpensive cell phone bills, like all these things. And that enables us to then spend money on the things that we want. Like my kids are both excellent swimmers and we have one of the top five swim clubs in America, like a mile from our house. And that costs a couple thousand dollars a year. Like, is someone who's depriving themselves, like, going to spend a couple thousand bucks on their kids' activity? No. But we've made the decision that that's important to our lives and to our family. So it's about being intentional. So anyway, just to bring it back to your question, yeah, I, I think for us, forty to $50,000 would be kind of that sweet spot. So yeah, that would be somewhere between $1, one million and $1.25 in all likelihood. Gotcha. So the, some of the people that are doing it off, off 1 million, you, you think it's enough, you know, they don't worry about inflation or taxes or market dips or, you know, occasionally we'll have somebody on our show that, that says a million is their number. And, and, you know, to be honest, sometimes I wonder if it's enough to last 40 or 50 years. Yeah. I mean, it, it's one of these things that it is unknowable. And there are certainly many smarter people than I who have, who have run these numbers, you know, big earn at early retirement now is, is one of the biggest and, and most obvious people who have run like safe withdrawal rates. And, and he thinks the safe withdrawal rate is somewhere closer to 3.5%. That would almost guarantee you success. So, you know, if we want to talk at the margins about that, unquestionably we can, but I think, I think what this does is it provides a framework that allows people to think about this with some degree of certainty as opposed to guys, I'm sure you've seen like those retirement calculators, right? And like, to me, they're fundamentally flawed because they start at your current income. And that has nothing to do with anything when it comes to what do you need in retirement? Because if it was based on your income, that's presupposing that you're, that you're saving zero now, right? Because otherwise, why would you have to replace a hundred percent of your income? Right. So it's a totally illogical starting place. Whereas like if you can say to someone, Hey, to, to retire, you don't need that five or 10 million that you hear thrown around by the, the Susie Ormans of the world. 
it's up to you what you need, right? It's up to you because it's a function of your expenses. Now, again, it's not my place, Brad, the podcaster's place to say your expenses should be $40,000 like me. If it's $100,000 a year, okay, that's great. Then you need probably somewhere between $2.5 and $3 million. Okay, that's absolutely fine. Get a plan to get there and take some action, right? That's your decision, but you're going into it with eyes wide open, right? Because you've been intentional about it. Instead of just saying, oh, maybe someday I can retire. And guys, that little distinction is so crucial. Like having that agency over your life is so crucial and it changes the game entirely. Yeah, I think you make a super great point there that it's individualized, right? And I think everyone's is going to be different. Like you said, whether it's 40,000 or 70,000 or 100,000, you've kind of got to plan. You got to find that plan that works for you. You've got to find out how much you're going to spend, how much your family's going to spend, and then make the, the plans accordingly and take action accordingly. So, Brad, if, if this whole concept is, you know, taking control, if this is new for somebody, what do they start with? Do they start budgeting? Do they, you know, I mean, what, what's the first step here? The first few steps? Yeah. I, I mean, to me, it's, Getting some understanding of where you are. I mean, I think most people don't have any sense of what money's coming in and what money's going out more specifically, right? Like, so I don't want you to sit there and come up with some tedious budget and spend 20 hours figuring this out. Just, just jot down, like roughly where, where is your money going? Just to get some idea, like to have it on paper. If you have a significant other, the two of you should sit down and, and talk this through and just say like, okay, does this align with what we want our lives to look like? If we're currently saving nothing, then we know we can't ever retire. We can't ever get to financial independence. Probably we can't even get to a place where we can save a couple thousand bucks, right? And, and have that stress that's hanging over us at all times removed, right? Like, can you imagine what a stressful life that would be to live with no savings whatsoever where any little expense can ruin you. Like, so to me, like that's not an okay starting point to, excuse me, not to me, that's not an okay place to be for a long-term healthy life. So you have to create some space. And in order to do that, you need to cut something, right? But you have to figure out what your values are first. And again, it's not cutting for the sake of deprivation. Like we don't want people sitting there in this state of like, oh, I'm on a diet, so I have to cut everything and I'm going to be miserable. Like if you're on a financial diet and you're thinking of this as misery, it's going to fail. It's preordained to fail. Honestly, I don't even know why you, why you would go into it with that mindset. Whereas if you shift the mindset, so again, guys, it's that subtle shift, right? It's if you say this is so we can get some control over our lives, so we can get this stress that's hanging over us out of our lives. And then as we open up more space, as we get into this and find out that our lives are not deprived and we're getting wealthier, then it becomes a fun game. Like my wife and I, we love playing this game. Like that's how we view it. It's like a game of life where we get to just optimize and turn these little dials that help us kind of like win, if you will. Like, I, I, you know, I have this big smile on my face, guys, when I'm describing this because because that's how I think about it. I think about it as like we're living this same upper middle class life as everybody else, but we're just doing a couple things differently that are helping us win. And 
it is just such a liberating and wonderful position to be in. And also it brings us closer as spouses. Like we, we love this. It's fun to talk about. There's not that, that stress between us that there is in so many relationships. So anyway, I, long story short to your question is, yeah, like that's the starting point. And then again, it's not my place to tell you what to cut or what to determine is important, but you have to figure that out and you have to create that space so you can start saving some money. Yeah, I think, I think it's great advice. And I think even with the millionaires that we interview, you know, maybe they're well, they, they're past fire or maybe their number's bigger or whatever it may be. But I think they share that same idea that they're focused, that they know what they want. They know what they're going to focus on or what they're going to cut. They have that element of intentionality in their finances and with their life. So similar, I think even with the high earners and, and those with high net worth. So Brad, before we dive into your life, I kind of want to hear about your story, but just real quick, what stood out to you on the show? Have you had a favorite episode or maybe a favorite lessons, something new that's popped out to you? Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's a really good question. There have been so many. I mean, to me, I guess what stood out is both the power of community and the power of, of hearing your own story in someone else and getting comfort and motivation from that. So we have a whole bunch, we have, we have a, I guess 200 plus episodes at this point. And, and we've had, I think probably somewhere in the vicinity of a hundred different guests. And there will be times almost invariably, like every single episode where we'll get a couple emails and people just saying like, Oh my God, that just connected with me. I heard my story in them and that has changed their lives. Just hearing that one podcast, they're like, maybe Jonathan and I didn't think it was our best episode of all time. You know, like just for whatever reason, but it connected with that percentage of the, of our community and it just changed their lives. So from our perspective as podcasters, that is a job well done, right? That's amazing. And things connect with different people. And I think, like I said at, at the outset, like community has been remarkable to see, like, you know, not to kind of toot our own horn with choose if I, but like we have this Facebook group with 30,000 people. We have all these local groups across the world and people are meeting up in real life and relying on other members of their community for, for tips, for ways to save money, for assistance, for sharing tools, like, and also just to get together for some beers at a local microbrewery and just hanging out. Right. And that kind of stuff has just made such a huge difference. And it's, it's almost hard to believe sometimes that like this community exists because Jonathan and I started a podcast two years ago. So yeah, I mean, those are the lessons and there are too many like amazing guests we've had, but like, you know, having Vicky Robin on was incredible. JD Roth was the very first personal finance blog that I read like way back probably in 2010. And not only to get to meet him and interview him, but to become a friend of his has been amazing to me. So yeah, I could go on and on and on about guests, but yeah, those were two certainly that stuck out. Brad, let's, let's get a little bit into to your story and kind of your journey to FI and, and maybe let our listeners and know how, how does Brad, how do you invest? I guess my story, let's, let's start kind of at the beginning. So similar to you guys, I was in the, uh, the accounting world. So I, started actually i graduated college in 2001 and i got a job at what at the time was the most prestigious accounting firm in the world which was arthur anderson 
Okay. And if students of history remember at this point, uh, the Enron fiasco happened right around that time. And Arthur Anderson, for all intents and purposes, ceased to exist nine months later. Okay. So I got to be there on the ground. And that was my initial foray into corporate America, seeing this incredible institution just decimated. And it really was one of my first lessons in FI, kind of in a weird way. Like that first nine months, like A, I realized that, holy cow, like I don't get any vacation time. <laughs> like as silly as that sounds, guys, like it, it almost seemed like a prison sentence. And I know that's that's a very extreme way of putting this. And I, I just haven't come up with a better way to describe it. But like after living your entire life, having months off in the summer and a month off in December, et cetera, like to imagine not being able to take off more than like nine calendar days in a row from the time I was 22 until if I could retire early at 62, like 40 years later, that seemed impossible to believe to me. Like that didn't seem like a life well lived. And I also saw the partners who like, that's the carrot, right? For the young associates in the public accounting world. Oh, you could be partners someday. Well, these women and men were killing themselves. Like they were working 80 hour weeks. They constantly had to bring in new business. Like that wasn't a life I aspired to. And then also to see the impermanence of corporate America and seeing like, wow, a company like this could cease to exist so quickly. Like all that these people work for is gone. Right. So those lessons, guys, like I'm spending so much time on this, but, but it's really important. Like that set this in my mind that I need to take control. And the best way that I could do that is by saving money. And yeah, I mean, I was very fortunate. My parents allowed me to live at home for the first, I guess, two and a half, three years after graduation. And I saved probably 90% of my income. I didn't have any expenses. So I saved everything. And I wound up, I wound up buying an apartment on Long Island, uh, New York. So it was a co-op apartment. And yeah, the thing actually did rise in value over the first two or three years that I owned it. And I wound up selling it right after I got married. And so I got married at the end of 2005. And my wife, Laura, and I, I don't know, at the time, I was 26 years old. She was 27. Like, how we had the the mental wherewithal to say, like, we don't want this life. We're, you know, we're both CPAs. We could be successful on Long Island and, you know, everything would be fine. But we'll always have to give something up. That was how we looked at it. And the life, the structural life was just too expensive there. So at that point, I was working for a private company and uh, they actually had tax personnel down in Richmond, Virginia, which coincidentally was where I went to uh, university. And I asked for a transfer and they accepted. And we basically picked up two weeks after we got back from our honeymoon and moved down to Richmond. And, you know, the, like I said, structural expenses, they're about a third of what they were on Long Island. And it was just a much easier life here in Richmond. And it's enabled us to thrive. That's awesome. So as you started saving all that money, obviously, you started investing and getting on your journey to FI. Where have you decided to put most of your money? Where do you put all of that savings? Are you doing investments in the market? Do you do real estate? Kind of what's your take and what's your mindset towards investing? Yeah, I mean, I initially way back when thought that I could possibly like beat the market, right? Or if I do all this research, like, hey, I'm a pretty smart guy, like maybe I can beat the market. But the more that I got into it, the more I realized that 
I just a didn't have the time or b the expertise, even though I was a CPA and I can look at financial statements like I didn't genuinely believe that I could beat the market over a 50 year period. And I kind of had gotten into Jack Bogle and Vanguard and Warren Buffett and read everything that they had put out and, and kind of really internalized the philosophy of of low cost index fund investing. And I certainly appreciate and, and don't have any issue with people who who believe they can beat the market and who find enjoyment in that. If that's your thing, do it. But like to me, I love simplicity. I crave it in my life, guys. And the low cost index fund investing is just so simple. And it also kind of follows one of the general tenets of FI to me, which is control what you can control. So it goes back to what we were talking about before with lowering your expenses. Well, that I can control, right? I can also control my expenses on my investing. And, you know, we've all seen the compound interest calculators of if you have a tiny little like four or five basis points expense ratio on a, on an index fund versus let's say a 1% expense ratio on a fund plus a financial advisor, like over 30 years, that's going to make an enormous difference, almost a 50% difference. So, I mean, expenses matter. So anyway, long story short, I keep the vast majority of my funds in low cost index funds. But as of late, I've decided I wanted to kind of like dip my toes into real estate a little bit. So I've been looking into the, uh, some of the online crowdfunding sites. I have invested a, a fairly sizable amount in Peer Street and, uh, just dabbled with like Fundrise and I think, uh, Realty Mogul is another one. And I'm not endorsing any of these guys that, you know, so obviously everybody has to do their own due diligence and research, but it's, uh, you know, just something that I, I, I've decided to kind of branch out to. And, and one thing I haven't even mentioned on my podcast yet is that I, I just bought my first single family rental. So yeah. I, I, yeah, it's cool. It's really cool. Um, so tell us about that deal. Is it? Is it close to you? Is it, how'd you find it? How'd you kind of decide, Hey, I, if I want to get into real estate, obviously you said you kind of did some of the crowdfunding, but how did you know to start single family versus multifamily or do a syndication? Yeah. I mean, I think I've been following people like Paula Pant and we've had some guests on our show, like, uh, Rich Carey and James Lowry who have invested in low co- in lower priced houses, like, Obviously, there are pluses and minuses of this, but but for my own kind of, I don't know, I've always had this fear of real estate investing, honestly, guys. I, I did some really, really stupid, like what ultimately was speculation. I thought at the time it was investing, but I've learned subsequently with through my own stupidity that it was just basically speculating in, in land in some of these like, uh, I don't know what you'd call them, golf course or country club type developments down in North Carolina and and places like that. And, and it really blew up in my face. So I've been very, very frightened of real estate investing. And like I said, that's just from my own mistakes, basically. But in life, you have to learn, right? And you have to take in new information and you have to realize that the past doesn't mean you're going to fail in the future if you've learned new things and if you're coming at this with the right intentions. So to me now, and again, like, people like Scott Trench and and the folks at bigger pockets like I've learned a lot about like the 1% rule and just these these kind of rule of thumbs you know the 50% rule of of expenses and well like these aren't hard and fast rules like it at least gives me a framework to look at this as a business and I think that was the fundamental turning point for me is looking at real estate investing as if it were a business 
And now does this make sense with all the expenses? Like guys, I'm not a handy person. Like I'm not going to fix, I'm not going to fix my places. Even if they were here in Richmond, I would have a property manager. So I just know that. And you have to build that into the P and L, right? Like it's really simple. If this makes sense as a business after running all the numbers and building in margins of safety, then okay. It's something that I'm willing to look into. So that was kind of the background. And it actually does kind of tie into the FI world is that my friend Steven, who runs the Camp FI events, he uh, lives in a town called Warner Robins, Georgia. And he had kind of identified this community for a potential like FI, like co-housing development. And I know this is kind of pie in the sky, guys, and I don't know if it'll ever come to pass, but it was something that really, really interested me. But in the meantime, these houses fit all of those requirements of, you know, certainly the 1% rule and, and more. And it was something that, okay, I figured this is going to be probably a pretty good investment based on, on what I can see. And if in this perfect world scenario, somehow or another in the next 10 years, it turns into this FI co-housing community, then all the better. You know, I've invested in something that I genuinely believe in and want to see succeed. Yeah, I think you hit on two great things. And and I think first, it's intentionality, right? I think you're intentional about what you want to do with your money and how you want to invest. And then second would be education. You know, you're doing what you can to learn about it and talk to people and, and do your own research before you dive into something. So just switching gears here before we wrap up with mistakes and some general advice. I know there's a hot topic of insurance, health insurance, and, and those that retire early or maybe those that are self-employed and, and rising health care costs. What have you heard on that point? And, and maybe what's your advice to somebody who retires early or is financial independent and, and leaves a workplace where they have a health sponsored you know, work plan? What do they do for health insurance? Yeah, this this is a tough issue. And I, I wish I had a perfect answer. Honestly, one does not exist. At this point in, I mean, we live in the U.S. and we all know the, the major issues with health insurance and healthcare here. And, and I think you just need to realize that, that that's a given, right? There's no, there's no magic bullet here. So just like anything, it's go in with your eyes wide open and know that this is a line item in your budget, both now and at FI and build that into your model, right? Build that into your numbers. So, uh, like I said, I, I wish there was some perfect answer. There is not, but, but as long as you realize that, then you can budget for it. So I think to your question, the, the options that I've seen, and I actually used, uh, Liberty Health Share for the last four years. And basically since I left my corporate job, we moved immediately to Liberty Health Share. And now this is not a perfect answer, but Liberty was, was wonderful. They did everything they said they would and more. I think the the only issues that arose by having Liberty were actually from the hospitals and doctors that that we actually used. So, and this is obviously painting a broad brush and, and it's anecdotal guys. So please, everybody has to figure out what works for them. And, and this might not be the case where, where you live. But in my particular instance, we had, we had two examples where we had very, very small, like my daughter had a, a tiny surgery and, and I had a procedure done and they were done in these hospitals. And they basically said they accepted Liberty HealthShare, but all that meant was they were going to send a bill to them. Now, Liberty sent them their negotiated payment as they saw fit. 
And then basically the hospitals build us for the remaining amount. That's called balance billing. So the reason why I'm going into so many specifics here, guys, is like this is this is crucial. This is the essence of why health shares may or may not work for you. So and depending on your level of risk. So what happened was basically I got a bill for 10 grand from this hospital for lying in their room for 45 minutes, even after Liberty had paid them thousands of dollars. And now to Liberty's great credit, they actually hired lawyers and then negotiated with the hospital and then paid them the remaining amount. Like I thought I would have to do that, but they paid it. So Liberty was wonderful. And I guess to your ultimate question, like their premiums per month are a fraction of what you would pay on the ACA exchange or, or something similar. So for many people who, who want to take that slight calculated risk, I think health shares, and I can speak personally for Liberty are a very, very good option. It controls your expenses and lowers them significantly. So, uh, you know, there is that risk inherent. And honestly, like we got to the point where that was just a little too much for us. So we actually just recently, just in the last couple of days, actually moved onto a traditional insurance plan. Now those are deductible. So that made, that made it a lot closer for us, but obviously with a large deductible and out of pocket maximum, there's, there's more potential that we can pay per year, but it lowered that risk to me, right? Like if I had a heart attack and a hospital charge us $500,000, well, that can be catastrophic for my life. As opposed to if the out of pocket maximum is 13,300, that's not catastrophic for my life. So it, this was about risk for me. And that, that's really how we approached it. And not to mention, we actually got access to an HSA, which I just fully funded for 2018. So that was a nice little side benefit as well. Yeah, I think that's a, it's going to definitely be an interesting topic, you know, over the next few years and, and on into the future. And it's kind of cool. You've kind of had the experience and kind of can speak to both sides of it or will be able to here after you've had the experience with the, the, the fully funded and the HSA and everything else. So just in closing, Brad, you know, you mentioned that you, you made some mistakes and some land speculation and some clubs in North Carolina and stuff. What are some of the other mistakes that you've made that you would steer others away from? Yeah, I mean, that that clearly is the biggest one. That's something that, honestly, I'm still kind of paying for. So, yeah, I mean, to me, it would be you got to do your research. And I think that's that's important. You have to figure out what works for your life. And don't get caught up in the speculation of the day. Back then, in 2005, it was, it was that type of property. You know, in 2017, it was Bitcoin, right? And we see these things happen over and over again when there's these, these fevers that take over with the population. And I think you gotta, you gotta be mindful of that. So, you know, that was clearly the number one for me. I, I think, you know, looking back, we did a, a pretty good job. I mean, I think one thing that I'm kind of sheepishly admit is that we didn't max out our 401ks for many, many, many years until very recently, actually. Even though we were saving so much, I, I don't know why we didn't do that. Like we didn't really understand, which is so silly that we're, Laura and I are both CPAs and like we should have known this, obviously, but for some reason, like that, that taxable savings, you know, that just having savings in your bank account or in your traditional taxable account at Fidelity or Vanguard or whatever, like that mattered to us. And like, Therefore, we didn't want to put everything into retirement accounts that we couldn't, quote unquote, couldn't access until we were 59 and a half. And we just we weren't aware of all the strategies and both on the, the current tax savings and also more importantly, on ways to potentially access that money 
before 59 and a half. And obviously guys, that's, that's way beyond the scope of, of this uh, podcast here. But, you know, just, I think I definitely would have maxed out all of my retirement vehicles. I think again, controlling what you can control. That's a theme that I've brought up a couple of times here is you can control your tax rate by maxing out those pre-tax vehicles. And I think that is a huge thing. And yeah, that's, that is without a doubt my, probably my second biggest failing. Glad you shared that with us. You know, as as far as advice goes, what would you tell somebody who's just beginning and maybe even share, you know, a life hack that, that you've enjoyed or that you've kind of figured out that you really like over the last five or 10 years or so? Yeah, I mean, to someone starting out, I would say this is a journey where you're just going to accumulate small wins over time. It doesn't all have to change tomorrow. And in fact, I would counsel against that. Like if you just radically overhaul your life tomorrow, like sure, for some small percentage of the population, that kind of thing works. But I think for most people, that's, that's not a recipe for success. So to me, and this actually kind of ties into your question about like, what's the strategy that's worked so well for me or like a little life hack. It's, it's this accumulation of marginal gains. That's the phrase that I've heard. And, and it's just kind of making your life better piece by piece, little, little thing by little thing. And I have just tried to make my life better, simpler, happier, just by doing these little things and just stacking them. So I've gotten significantly healthier over the last handful of years, just by eating better, by reducing my portions, by cutting carbs and sugar, uh, by my wife is an incredible meal planner. We've saved hundreds of dollars per month just by her being intentional about our meal planning. And therefore, we're eating in, we're not eating these, you know, I don't know, takeout or going out to eat and stuffing ourselves, right? So we're getting healthier. Like, I am looking at at my life as, like, my recurring task. So my, my actual biggest life hack is, is an app called Todoist. So it's T-O-D-O-I-S-T, Todoist. And this has changed everything for me. Like, I have basically taken all these things that were rummaging around my brain for everything I have to do in life, not only on a daily, weekly basis, but on a yearly or multi-year basis. So, I mean, literally down to like, I have to do my car registration every two years. So that's in Todoist now as a recurring task every December 10th of every odd year. And I know this sounds silly, guys, but like I never have to think about that. So I have the link to the Virginia DMV. I have my login ID there and it's just there. Everything in my life is in Todoist and I never have to worry about it because I took the time to do it right. So if you do something like that, 80% 80% or even 95%, you can't trust it fully. But I have taken the time and care to put every single thing in my life into this app and I trust it 100%. And my mental space that's been cleared up has been remarkable. So anyway, this is a, a long advertisement for Todoist, but man, it is it is the thing that has changed my life the most in the last couple of years. That's awesome. It's Brad with Choose FI. Thanks for coming on the show today. Guys, thanks so much. This was a blast. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.